Happy Sunday morning, beloved. Uh, good to be together worshiping the Lord and uh, good to have this moment to be able to turn our attention to God's word. So let's look together in God's word in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 and 21. As you turn there, let me pray for us. Father, indeed, we pray, speak to us in fresh ways right now. Speak to us in fresh power. Give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and Make us faithful, we pray, with your word. Help us, Lord. Build us up in the faith. Give us joy in the great salvation we have. And guide us, O oh Lord, for the glory of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May you live in interesting times. You may have heard it said that that's an ancient Chinese curse. Supposedly the saying is, Meant to be ironic, Inter interesting times, seems like when you would want to live. But in fact, times of peace and quiet are the times where we feel most blessed. And interesting times are sometimes the times that have the most catastrophic and uncertain and uncomfortable events. In truth, this is not an ancient Chinese proverb. There is no known equivalent expression in Chinese as may you live in interesting times. Like a lot of myths, the saying probably originates with a politician. A British politician, Joseph Chamberlain, uh, given a speech in 1898, said this, I think that you will all agree that we are living in most interesting times. And Parliament says, here, here. I never remember myself remember myself a time in which our history was so full, in which day by day brought us new objects of interest, and let me say also new objects of anxiety. Here, here. You see what Chamberlain was saying. We, they were living in interesting times in England at that point, but those interesting times were full of not only interesting things, but anxiety-producing things. It became something that the Chamberlain family associated with Chinese culture. Joseph Chamberlain's son, Austin, apparently repeated his father's saying uh, to others over the years. Another politician, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, a fellow by the name of Frederick René Coderre, once wrote to Austin Chamberlain. And Representative Coderre remembered the letter exchange uh, with Chamberlain and described it this way. He said, some years ago in 1936, I had to write a very dear and honored friend of mine who has since died, Sir Austin Chamberlain, brother of the present prime minister. And I concluded my letter with a rather banal remark that we were living in an interesting age. Evidently, he read the whole letter because by return mail, he wrote to me and concluded as follows. Many years ago, I learned from one of our diplomats in China that one of the principal Chinese curses heaped upon an enemy is, may you live in an interesting time, interesting age. Surely, he said, no age has been more fraught with insecurity than our own present time. And then Mr. Kudir says, that was three years ago. So in that way, a myth used to explain strange times was passed from one politician to another politician and then passed into the common culture 
of our country. Ideas travel. And ideas have consequences. In fact, ideas can create interesting times that feel more like curses than blessings. In the case of the cliche, may you live in interesting times, an, an ironic saying gets attributed to a people group who have nothing to do with it. And on the whole, that has been harmless beyond the misrepresentation itself. But we live in interesting times right now. And the reason our time is so interesting is that false ideas are being passed along with such regularity, with such speed, with such ferocity at the highest levels of our culture that it's creating a strangeness unlike any period in recent history. We have been introduced to conspiracy theory, theories of all sorts. Millions of people are taken in by the wildest claims with no evidence to support them. Nowadays, we have new phrases and words to go along with the strange times. If we don't like a report, we simply denounce it as fake news. We laughed the first time we heard that, and, and we ridiculed the fake news. But ever so gradually, quietly and steadily, we have grown a deeper suspicion of journalism and any claims to objective truth. We speak nowadays of alternative facts, when once a fact was a fact. Today, we choose our pronouns and we bend our genders when once those two were facts. The times are not just interesting. They are strange. And the question becomes, what should God's churches do in strange times? Do we change with the times? Do we check out of society altogether? Do we try to blend the old with the new into some kind of hybrid? It's our custom at ARC to begin each year with a short series on what we call our five M's. We, we have five objectives as a church that help us to define and pursue our mission. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. We put that into practice with what we call our, our five M's. They are spreading the message of the gospel, showing mercy to our neighbors, shepherding each other to maturity in Christ, and seeking to multiply leaders and gospel churches. Uh, and number five, sending missionaries to the ends of the earth. We do this series at the new year in order to reorient ourselves to our calling in our neighborhood and in the nations. It's a refresh so that we can re-engage. Now, I've titled the series this year, Strange Times, Same Mission, because we are living in strange times, yes, 
But God's church should not change with the times. It should not check out of society, and it shouldn't even try to blend the old with the new. God's church should remain on the same mission that God gave us and remain there until he comes. So as much as the world is changing, our prayer is, our prayer needs to be that this congregation and all faithful congregations of believers would never change when it comes to the core commitments of our faith and of our church family. But to stay on point, we're going to need to make some mind shifts here as we start 2021. Normally in this series, I would lay out something of a vision going forward. I would try to talk about some strategies and ideas that, that we could sort of undertake in order to advance our mission. And we still have those strategies and ideas, but in times as strange as these, I'm more burdened about our hearts and our minds than I am about our strategies. So as we revisit our core objectives, I want us to take stock of what's in here, what's in the heart, what's in here, what's in our minds. Let's see if and where we may need to make some shifts in our thinking, some shifts in our feeling in order to stay faithful on the mission that God has given us. So to begin, we want to look at our first end. We want to spread the message of the gospel by looking at uh, another strange time. It was the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. God was doing tremendous miracles. The gospel was finally being understood by the disciples and preached publicly. And as we look at Acts chapter 3, verses 11 and 21, I want us to ask and answer two questions this morning. Number one. Who should we focus on? Who should we focus on? And number two, what should we focus on? What should we focus on in terms of the content of our message? Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 21. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you deny the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. And you kill the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So the first question we want to take up is, who should we focus on? In verses 1 to 10, for context, Peter and John run into a crippled man at the beautiful gate as they're on the way to the temple. He's been positioned out there and he's begging for alms. He's asking for money. And when Peter and John roll up on him, Peter looks at him and says, listen, silver and gold, I have none. I ain't got no money. But what I do have, I give to you freely. And he locked eyes with the man. He said to the man, rise up and walk. And God did a miracle in that moment. That man was instantly healed. He got up. He began to walk around. He began to run around, in fact. And he went into the temple with Peter and John praising God. Now, the people knew this man. So when they saw him, verse 11 tells us that, that they were astounded. The man is clinging to Peter and John. He's so happy he won't even let them go. And the people surround them, and and they are, as verse 11 says at the end, astounded. They are in awe of what just happened. Now, it's Peter's response in verse 12 that helps us understand that something is off in the crowd's focus. Verse 12 says, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Now in that verse are basically two rhetorical questions built upon two sort of statements of fact. The, the two questions are this, why do you wonder? Why do you wonder that God could do a miracle? And number two, why do you stare at us? Now, he asked those questions because he's also uh, mindful of a couple of facts, right? The two statements are this. The two facts are this. It's not about our power, Peter says, and it's not about our piety, Peter says. Those two statements point out that the crowd have not only lost their sight of God and lost sight of God's power, but they are giving credit for God's work to the apostles instead of God. The crowd has become man-centered rather than God-centered. The crowd is seeing a strange thing. In this case, a divine healing. And they are focused on the apostles. But Peter is trying to refocus them on God. There's something for us to learn from Peter's response. If we are going to boast in the Lord, then we cannot boast on ourselves. If Jesus is going to be great, then we will have to be nothing. If we are going to be great, then Jesus will be nothing. We can't have it both ways. Peter understands that, and really the Bible tries to teach us that over and over again. Think about when Jesus first steps on the scene in John's Gospel in John 3, and John the Baptist is the one preaching, and he has some notoriety. You remember what he says in John 3, verse 30? He must increase, but I must decrease. 
Or even in the Old Testament, when the prophet Jeremiah is preaching to Israel in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, this is what we read. Thus says the Lord, let, the, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The Apostle Paul must have loved Jeremiah chapter 29 because he basically quotes or paraphrases from it in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians when he says this, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think it shapes the way he thinks about his entire life and ministry because Paul writes again in Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Well, remember what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So why do I emphasize this point about boasting in God rather than boasting in ourselves? Well, it's because I think a lot of Christians boast in their pastors and a lot of pastors and church leaders boast in themselves. When it's time to decide who gets the attention whether it's us or Jesus, I think too many Christians decide us. We live in an age that seems to be all swallowed up in building a brand and building a platform. Love it, I'm convinced those are simply terms for bringing attention to ourselves rather than to Jesus. Those are ways of gathering a crowd and then saying to the crowd, look at me, look at me. See, brand building and, and, and platform building that focuses on man is so utterly contrary to what the Bible teaches our focus should be. It's so utterly contrary to what the, the apostles' example to us is in the scripture. That kind of building of a brand, building of a platform, making a name for man, well, it's a snare and a trap. On those platforms, pride grows like moss. On those platforms, self-importance spreads like poison ivy. If we're going to spread the message effectively in these strange times where there's so many people wanting to be looked at and to draw attention to themselves, then we'll have to turn attention away from ourselves and away from human leaders and onto God in Jesus Christ. That's a shift that has to happen. And so my question is for us this morning is do we, do we need that kind of shift to take place in our focus. And to think about it a little bit more deeply, to ask ourselves the question, what harm is done to the spread of the gospel when we focus on ourselves rather than focusing on God? And not just what harm is done to the spread of the gospel, what harm is done to lost souls 
when we focus on our own selves and our own needs rather than focusing on God and who he is. Peter understood the danger. So he said, don't look at us. And in verse 12, he implies, look at God. That's our first question. Who should we focus on? Answer, God. Here's the second question. What should we focus on? What should we focus on in terms of the content of our message that we're hoping to spread? When, when people look at us in these strange times, what should we say to them? Well, in verses 13 to 21, Peter begins to, to preach his second sermon since Pentecost um, in chapter 2. And just like his first sermon, Peter in the second sermon preaches, preaches the same message in different words. He preaches the gospel to the people. Now we might outline verses 13 to 21, and we might outline Peter's message here in three parts. And this is what we want to focus on in our message as we spread the gospel. Number one, Jesus is glorified. Jesus is glorified. Number two, sinners, people, are guilty. People are guilty. Number three, salvation is given. Salvation is given. That's what we want to focus on delivering as we think about spreading the message of the gospel as individuals and a church family. Let's take those things in turn. First off, Jesus is glorified. That's the first point that we want to make. That's how Peter starts in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Now that little phrase is packed. It's packed with meaning. It's packed with allusion to other parts of the Bible. First of all, Peter refers to the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and Jacob. These are the patriarchs or the fathers. These are um, the sort of founders, if you will, humanly speaking, of, of, of biblical religion. God made his covenant not with the nations, but with Abraham, and then passed that covenant down to Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob, and made them into the nation of Israel. So what Peter is preaching here, he means us to understand, is a message that is connected to the one true God of Israel, and is a message that is connected all the way back to Exodus, where this description of God is first recorded. Secondly, now, the phrase, his servant Jesus, refers back to the prophets. So we've got both the law and the prophets being referred to here in verse 13. And this reference, his servant Jesus, brings to mind the servant song of Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant who is described there. And Peter will make this more explicit in a moment, but what Peter is preaching is not something new. It is something really old. It's centuries old in its origin. There are strange things happening at Pentecost and miracles happening at the birth of the church. But what Peter focuses on in terms of his content is the old, old story of the gospel. The message that dates back to Abraham comes up through the prophets, comes down to the apostles, and is passed along to you and me. 
So we do not deviate from the message of the gospel one scintilla. This old message is about Jesus being glorified. This means it's about Jesus being highly exalted. Jesus is to be the name that is above every name, in every nation, in every language, in every time. That name is to be high and lifted up, Jesus. So Rance Allen used to sing, there's something about that name. It's the sweetest name we know. So the question becomes, how then did God glorify or exalt Jesus? And there are a couple ways to think about that. I, I think it's useful to allow Jesus himself to tell us how he thought about being glorified. And to do that, we, we turn to John's gospel and we see there at least two possibilities. One possibility we see in John chapter 17, where the Lord is praying what's called the high priestly prayer. And here's how he starts that prayer in verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify, there it is, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Peter, in Acts chapter 3, could be referring to what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 17, which is that being glorified in his ascension, in his rising to heaven, and in his second coming, and in the fullness of God's kingdom. You might think of that as his final glory. So it could be that Peter has in mind the second coming of Christ and that final glory. Or, a little bit earlier in John, John chapter 12, verses 20 to 24, Jesus talks about his being glorified in a different way. Now look there with me. We read, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these Greek people came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much so in this passage, with the coming of the Greeks, with the coming of the Gentiles to Jesus, Jesus recognizes that his hour has come, and it's the hour of his being glorified. And in this context, his glorifying, his being glorified means to die like a seed and to rise again and to produce fruit. That's what I think Peter actually has in mind in Acts chapter 3. Notice what Peter refers to at the end of Acts chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. So Jesus' point of glory, of exaltation, in his earthly ministry, 
and the, the aspect of his glory which we wish to preach in the message of the gospel is that glory that God gives to Jesus in the cross of Calvary. So we must preach the cross with no embarrassment and no shame. We must preach the cross knowing that the cross is the way the Father glorified his Son. Jesus is highly exalted among the nations because one day he was exalted on Calvary. And he promised that if he was lifted up, then he would draw all people to himself. That's what we need to be about most of all, beloved. In 2021, in these strange times, we must be most of all about lifting up Jesus about preaching the cross. The Father has glorified him in this way, and the church should glorify him in this way too. So let me ask you a question. That's the first part of our message, the content that we want to focus on. So let me ask you a question here. Is glorifying Jesus, specifically by speaking of the cross, our focus? Is it your focus? Is it my focus. If not, then we need to make a shift, beloved. We need to make a shift. First part of our message is Jesus is glorified. Second part is people are guilty. People are guilty. That's what Peter seems to uh, focus on as he addresses the crowd about their spiritual standing before God. Look with me in verses 13 to 15. He refers to Jesus and he says there, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you deny the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. Now, I think there are two things that are important to see about how Peter is addressing the crowd here. Uh, first of all, notice that he, he assumes that not all of the people standing there were directly and personally involved in the sort of um, betrayal of Christ, the denial of Christ, and the death of Christ, yet he sees them as all guilty of it. Peter holds them personally responsible and guilty before God for that rejection. See, it's, it's as a people represented by their religious leaders they had delivered Jesus over. It's as a people represented by their religious leaders that they had denied the Lord in front of Pilate. It's as a people represented by their religious leaders that they denied the holy and righteous one and exchanged, notice the irony, the author of life for a murderer, exchanged the one who gives life for the one who takes life. They were accountable to God for that very thing. They shared in the guilt, even though it's unlikely that everybody in this crowd was in Pilate's courtroom or, 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 or in the courtyard of the high priest. But their leaders had been there who represented them. And Peter charges them all with that guilt. So let me give you a little, little theological speak here. In Christian terms, we talk about uh, having what's called federal heads. Someone as a head represents 
us before God. So Adam in the fall into sin is our federal head. We didn't eat the fruit with Eve. Adam and Eve ate it. And yet, as our representative, Adam became guilty and we became guilty in Adam. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, according to Romans chapter 5, verses 21 and following, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, well, he did not sin. He was righteous. And he fulfilled all that God expected of us. And in his righteousness, he now represents everyone who believes in him. And now as our federal head, his righteousness is our righteousness. Peter's doing that same kind of theology here with, with the Jews. He's saying, hey, you killed him. You rejected him. You denied him. You denied him. Then you killed him. Well, why? Because their federal leaders have done that. Let me just draw a line over to us as Christians who are members in this society who have federal leaders who represent us. We share in what's happening with our government. We share in what gets done by our representatives. We have an accountability for that. Now, the way we respond to that is not by doubling down on politics. We've got to be good stewards of our political calling, but the way we respond to that is by speaking this truth to power that people are guilty and that their sin they're going to be held accountable for before God and they need to respond to God in the way that's described in just a moment. So Peter confronts the people in their sin and tells them they share in the guilt of their leaders in rejecting Christ. Now, notice another thing here too. Notice now that ignorance does not remove guiltiness. Peter says in verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. According to Leviticus 4, and right here in Acts 3, verse 17, our unintentional sins, unintentional sins, are enough to make us guilty before God and worthy of hell before a holy judge. Here's the mind shift that some of us need to make on this point. We have to stop thinking that the ignorant are innocent. Or that the lost are innocent. Lost and innocent are two very different things. Ignorance and innocence are two very different things. We have to stop confusing those things because when we get them confused, ignorance with innocence, we tend to then think that God's the bad guy, that God's the wrong for judging people and holding them to account for what they do not know. Listen, there's another cliche that comes to us from Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. You almost never hear me quoted, but this one you hear all the time. And that is ignorance of the law is no excuse. If that's true in American political law, how much more true is it with regard to the law of God and our accountability to him? Ignorance is no excuse. Those who have never heard are still accountable to God. Accountability to God's judgment, even in the case of ignorance. Beloved, that is what makes spreading the message so urgent. People are already guilty. 
but they may not know that A, judgment is coming, and B, Jesus has died for them. They may not know that. So we have to hustle to spread the message. As has been often said, the gospel is not good news unless it gets there on time. And so how urgently are you and I spreading the message of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection to others around us? How urgently are we confronting people about their sin and their accountability to God? I'm praying this year the Lord would give me and would give us as a church a renewed and a heightened zeal for his glory and for his gospel. I'm praying that he would give us a, a loving boldness with, with the truth when it comes to confronting people about their sin and accountability to God. Because this is an essential part of the message we spread. People are guilty before God apart from Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the third thing that we want to focus on in our message, and that is salvation is given. You see that in verses 19 to 21. Peter says there, Repent therefore and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Beloved, salvation is given, but only to the repentant. But only to the repentant. The first command of the gospel, first word here in verse 19, is repent. Now, repent means to change your mind and to change your behavior toward God as a consequence. That's why in verse 19, Peter says, repent and turn again. He's not being redundant there. Repent, metanoia, change your mind and turn again. Change your lifestyle, orient your life and your behavior toward God. The only way to receive the benefits of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is to return to God, convinced that we were wrong for living apart from him, and return to God, resolve now to live with him and for him. That's the only way what Christ did on the cross and, 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 and what Christ accomplished in the resurrection becomes ours as we look to live for God. And so when we preach this message and spread this message, we need repentance to be a major part of our focus when we're talking to people. We're not doing good evangelism if we are not calling people to repent just like the apostles did from the beginning. Now, here's what I want us to see here. That this repentance is not merely duty, it is also the path to blessing. Now, Peter says there are really three tremendous blessings that follow to all those who do, in fact, repent. Notice the results there, beginning in verse 20. He says, repent so your sins are blotted out. That means all of our sins are erased or, or, or covered over uh, when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of them. 
sometimes I see on Twitter, people will uh, take a screenshot of something or quote tweet something. And in order to protect people, um, they will mark out the name or, or mark out some detail in there so you can't see it. That's the idea here, blotting out, that God is marking, he's blotting out the, the record of our sins against him when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that word blotted out there is used elsewhere in the New Testament. When in Revelation chapter 3, um, I think it is, we're told that, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's the same word for blotting out. Or in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, where Paul says that, that basically our sins are nailed to the cross, we bear them no more, that the record of our debt because of the law has been canceled. It's the same word there. That God is blotting out our sins. He's erasing them from his view so that our sins no longer come between us and God. And that's God's promise, and that's God's blessing to everyone who repents and believes. Here's the second thing. Peter says, repent so times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repentance brings a, a new spiritual vitality. Sin has a way of dragging us down, of depressing us. The psalmist says that as long as he did not confess his sin, he lay on his bed groaning like his bones were being broken. Sin is a, a weight that oppresses and bobs down, but repentance frees us from the burden of sin. And in the presence of the Lord, there comes now a, a fresh wind. There comes now a, a cool drink. There comes a, a refreshing that, that lightens and lifts and gives life. We need personal revival. Sometimes it's because we need to repent so we receive this refreshing. As we look out on the community and think about our mission in the community, if we want to see our community refreshed, then the way we do that is by calling our community to repent, to turn to God, the author of life. And so that's the second blessing. Here's the third blessing. Peter says, repent so Jesus might be sent back for us. God has appointed a day for the return of his son. That day will not happen until all the elect have turned to God in saving faith and repentance. And when we do, then, then history will be wrapped up. Eternity will be brought to the full and God's kingdom will be here in all of its fullness. And notice what Peter says in verse 21. It's then that all the things will be restored. Restored to the way that God made them, the way God intended them to be. Restored so that they are without sin, that they are without brokenness, so that the, the creation is without strangeness. What a day that was. Need to live these strange days in light of that glorious day to come. That needs to be our focus. So we're not swept away in distraction. So we're not swept under in discouragement. So we don't grow bitter and cold and angry or depressed and despondent and withdrawn. We have to look up from the strangeness and look out to the coming glory of the Lord and have that glory 
sell our hearts in this strangeness and have that coming keep us focused on what's eternally important. That will be for our joy. Do you see repentance as something that would bring you forgiveness, refreshing, and restoration on the day of Christ? Do you see repentance as something God commands for our good and for our joy? When's the last time you and I repented of anything? My non-Christian friend, you've been listening to us this morning. We're so glad that you have chosen to do so. We can't think of any place we would rather you to be. And we really want you to hear this message, which is at the center of our life and the center of our church. That Jesus Christ has been glorified by being crucified on the cross for your sin, not for his. And he was raised from the grave three days later so that you might have victory over death, never die, live eternally. And so that you might be righteous in the presence of God even though right now you're a sinner. And, and we need you to know, as we've been saying, that you are, in fact, a sinner. You know that about yourself. You don't talk about it at dinner parties, but you know it. And everybody who knows you knows it. And so why pretend not to be in conversations about God? What sense does that make? No, 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 no. You need to recognize that you are guilty before God and because of that guilt, you deserve God's judgment. And if you die in that guilt, you will receive that judgment. And that judgment will be forever separated from God in hell. It's not what you were made for, so don't choose it. No, instead, repent of the sin. Turn away from it. Turn back to God. Change your mind about sin. Focus your mind on God and His holiness. Live for God in faith. And these promises in verse 20 and 21 are yours. God will blot out all of your sins. So you don't even have to think of yourself as a sinner anymore, but as forgiven. That becomes your main identity. And, and refreshing will come from the Lord. You have a life that's reinvigorated and renewed as you rejoice in this gospel. And then you will have this blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again to gather his church and to bring those who believe in him into his eternal kingdom. We want you to get in on that. We, we want you to be ready when he comes. And the way to be ready is to right now confess, repent, and put your faith, your trust, your hope in Jesus Christ to be your righteousness before God, to pay the penalty for your sins to God, and to represent you forever with God. It's only as you put your faith in Jesus and follow him that you can have the blessings of his sacrifice. Do that today. Do that now. Do that urgently, for tomorrow's not promised. And church family, of all the strategies that we can think about, Coffee and Convo on Mondays, Bible studying on Thursdays, Sunday mornings as we worship, all the ways we can invite people to come with us to those things, or uh, all the people that we can talk to in the workplace in our family. Um, we can have all kinds of strategies, and they would be helpful. But what we need to focus on right now is whether or not we have the right focus. 
on God and on his message. And if there are any shifts that need to take in our place, take place in our, in our hearts and minds so that we have an even bigger focus on God and his message. May the Lord give us grace to do that. And may he get yet more glory out of it as we live for him. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we pray that you would give us just such grace to be zealous for you, to bring you honor and glory, to exalt your son just as you exalted him, to make him known to our neighbors, that they might come to know him, that we might share together in this great gift of salvation. Make us faithful with your gospel, we pray, in these strange times with so many falsehoods and distractions. Help us to be truth people and proclaim your gospel in Jesus' name.